many of our solutions, as you say, were mature, not only mature, but they were modal agnostic. So perfectly applicable to rail, as well as rubber tire applications. And beyond that, the footprint. I mean, we were present at major multimodals and dozens of rail properties in North America alone, right? Forget about Europe and all the other places we're present around the world. I don't know what it is, but I love trains. I think I, I always have, even as a kid. And not that I've ridden that many trains. I just have this affection for taking trains, especially for commuting. Hi, this is Tris Hussey, and welcome to another episode of Inside Trapeze. And today, my guest is Marcelo Bravo, who is the Director of Business Development for Rail at Trapeze. Marcelo, how's it going? Doing well, Tris. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah. It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this chat. And so we were just talking in the green room, green room that uh, I was working on an upcoming Transit Unplugged episode of uh, all about rail for uh, and commuter rail. So this is I'm in the rail frame of mind. But but first, Marcelo, let's talk. What's talk about your background and how did you get into rail and trapeze? Where why are you here? Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely, well, it's a family story, to be honest with you. Um, you know, my father was working in the automotive industry for many years um, and uh, working his dream job, if you will. And at some point in the 70s, he made a complete shift and moved into the rail industry, starting with rail car manufacturing. After a couple of years of that, he joined Amtrak, where he still today claims that that was like his most incredible learning experience where he learned most everything he knows about rail. And, uh, and, and he talks about that all the time. And soon after in the late seventies, he, um, he created his own consulting firm, um, which my brother still, uh, runs today. And, um, after I graduated from college, I joined this firm and this was like back in the early nineties. And, uh, and I just, I learned so much in those years. It was incredible. And not least because my father at that time was doing so much business abroad. So I traveled with him to Japan, Germany. We were in France and we spent time in Denmark, South America as well, Argentina, Chile, just to name a few. And I rode trains in all those places and met with rail car builders and met with railroads and transit agencies. And it was just, it was just incredible. But then I had a, uh, let's call it a, a life-changing experience, a big shift. My, my girlfriend at the time, um, she finished her studies abroad in the United States and she lost her student visa and she moved, she went home back to Europe. And so, you know, what to do? <laughs> so, so uh, you know, the answer for me was, well, I packed my bags. I said, dad, sorry, I'll be back in a few years. And I moved to Denmark. We eventually got married, but, uh, in Denmark, but I was very fortunate to get a job with ABB Denmark, um, rail car manufacturer, later became a part of Abtrans and Bombardier. Today, they're awesome, right? And um, tried a few things there, but ultimately I was responsible for Flexliner, DMU, and EMU rail car products in North America and Spanish-speaking markets worldwide. So uh, that line of trains was based on the original IC3s for the DSP. Again, I learned so much during those years and I tried my hand in software, right? And that's probably, you know, one of the first things that led me towards trapeze many, many years later. Um, but I was responsible for the European market, um, 
also specifically related to enterprise asset management software. And, um, and then eventually moved back to the United States and was responsible for half of North America. And finally, I returned to my father, spent where I spent, well, at this point, about half of my career. And, um, and then about six or seven years ago, a very close friend of mine who had recently joined Trapeze reached out to me and he said, hey, there's an opportunity here. Let's work together. And I said, you know, it was pretty hard for me to leave the family business. But at that point, you know, I had been with him for 15 plus years. So I'm like, okay, I have to try something new. So I joined Trapeze. I've um, worn a few different hats at Trapeze. And now I'm responsible for the vast majority of commuter and inner city railroads in North America, as well as any private sector firm or team of firms that serves any steel wheel operator in any capacity. Um, so that would include mainly you know, operators and maintainers, but also P3, consortium joint ventures, any variation of design, build, finance, operate, maintain type arrangements. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing today. And, uh, and I'm super excited about it. When we've been talked about this before, this is a really good entry point into what your first impressions were of trapeze and rail and you know how how that evolved over time from knowing about trapeze on from the outside but then then joining trapeze and coming on the inside how you know what what did you think what was it all what was going through your mind it was it was interesting and you know, because I had been so focused in the rail industry th throughout my career, you know, I wondered, you know, whether that was a good decision or not. But, and to be fair, at the point I transitioned to Trapeze, I hadn't been deeply involved in the software side of the rail industry for several years. Um, so when I came to Trapeze, the, to tell you the truth, I, I had no idea how present Trapeze was in all modes of rail. So Frankly, you know, it was it was a let's say a positive <laughs> surprise shock, you know, and and it was it was great because there was a huge presence there. Yeah, and you, the things that you've talked about is the maturity of that of the products, not just the footprint, but it's not like, oh yeah, we kind of do rail. It's like no, no, trapeze really does rail. Can you talk about like how you found the level of the products? once you join trapeze. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose part of my surprise may have been due to some strategically important acquisitions that trapeze had made in years just prior to my joining, right? Including enterprise asset management software that had a huge footprint in rail, including FRA jurisdiction, commuter and inner city railroads, as well as scheduling and planning tools that we acquired right around that time um, uh, done by our sister company today called Signature Rail. Um, also of our full suite of solutions, I learned that many of our solutions, as you say, were mature, not only mature, but they were modal agnostic. So perfectly applicable to rail as well as rubber tire applications. So that was great to learn. And beyond that, like you said, the footprint, I mean, we were present at major multimodals and dozen of rail properties in North America alone, right? Forget about Europe and all the other places we're present around the world. But, um, you know, our workforce management solution, for example, 
was, which was recently acquired by two of the largest commuter railroads in North America. Uh, and, and our scheduling and planning solutions are being used by six of the largest FRA jurisdiction railroads in the Northeast today, which, which is where all the big railroads are, to be honest. And um, our EAM tools are installed at dozens of agencies, including all modes of rail with major properties as well. So, and that's just to name a few of our, let's call them, you know, our crown jewel, like the core tools from our suite. Yeah. And it always surprises me. Well, maybe it shouldn't surprise me by at, at this point. Is is that this depth and breadth of our products? And like you said, that they are modal agnostic. Like right. you can use EAM for things with rubber wheels, things with steel wheels, things with no wheels at all that don't move. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and which is which is tremendously important in the rail yeah. industry because you have all kinds of things that don't move, but you still need to maintain signaling and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very important to mention that. I mean, our enterprise asset management tools are, are precisely that. They're enterprise, uh, you know, wired. So for railroads, um, they not only deal with the rolling stock, but with the infrastructure, linear assets along the way, um, track and systems, electrification, signaling systems, all, anything and everything that's along the way, as well as um, even facilities. So you're right. It's not just the rolling stock. Yeah. Now, one of the things we we all talk about this the two two and a half years three years of the pandemic of it was really you know we've talked about it as the gut punch to the public transit industry and we've we've talked talked about it as a as an inflection point I like to think of it as a renaissance an opportunity in public transit to to do things differently and one of the areas I think is most fascinating. Is commuter rail. I for a little while I took our commuter rail from the the, the suburbs outside of Vancouver into the city. It's called West the West Coast Express. And it's beautiful. Imagine taking your commuter your commuter journey every morning and every evening goes by the ocean and mm-hmm. with mountain vistas. It's like it's it's a pretty ride, and it was wonderful. But that commuter rail is changing, and I think it's a huge opportunity. And I'm hearing agencies take advantage of it. Where do you th- see this, the commuter rail or now people are calling it regional rail segment going? Yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, I believe things are cyclical, right? And not just in our industry, just generally. Um, you know, there's no doubt that COVID has changed the landscape for commuter rail. And it's one of the modes that's hurting most, right? But I believe things will cycle back. You know, for example, I started working remotely in 1998. Right. So it's not a new thing. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I think that. I think that um, businesses, businesses have cycled generally as well. So this talk about city centers, people moving away from city centers and businesses not wanting to have offices and all that. I, I, I think that's a current thing that was heavily driven by COVID, but I think it'll cycle back. I don't think it was very long ago, I recall before COVID that many people were working remotely and management was thinking, I need to bring these people back in the office to get the face-to-face. It stimulates creativity and this and that and all these other things. So I think things will cycle back. Having said that, um, things are moving, you know, like, like, and I think it has kind of almost accidentally created these opportunities that you are referring to. One of the things is that many are moving towards more frequent trains, for example, 
And I think many, even before COVID, had recognized that, at least around major cities, reverse commuting is a very real thing. So there's no single direction anymore. I think traditionally commuter railroads, um, they exclusively ran peak hours in one direction from the suburbs into the cities. They sat all day waiting <laughs> for the commuters, you know, uh, four or five hours and literally turned around one direction, peak hours back to the suburbs. And I think what we're going to see a lot of, as you mentioned, regional regional rail is, is a new thing coming. Um, but you're going to see bi-directional, more frequent trains, almost like subway type schedules. So you don't, people will just be able to show up to a station and know that within 15 minutes, there'll be a train there. And also there's a lot of talk about weekends. There seems to be more demand on weekends, new weekend schedules, special events. We're seeing commuter rail really step up in re relation to big events, but also just generally people wanting to do things on the weekend, come into the cities and not want to take their car, right? Um, so, you know, ultimately I also believe that we won't make the same mistakes as we made in the past. You know, cars and airplanes failed to replace rail. You know, it took us 20, 30 years to recognize that. And in the early nineties, you know, over the last 30 years, 30, 40 commuter railroads have popped up in North America, have been revived using the same track where it wasn't pulled up. Many were pulled up, but um, we, we won't make that same mistake. So I, I just, I'm really confident that commuter rail is gonna, it's just in a cycle and it's evolving, uh, frankly, in a natural way for the better. And I, you mentioned, said something that was, I think a good segue to the next question that I've been reading a lot about. And we've had people like from Brightline on Transit Unplugged talking about where you said, you know, cars and planes didn't get rid of rail. And there seems to be this niche for high speed or near high speed rail in that too far to drive, too short to fly area. And do you think we'll see more of that? Do you think we'll see this, you know, trips that might take, I don't know, two or three hours by rail? It's going to just be a real pain to drive and way too short to fly and too expensive. But rail fits that niche very nicely. Do you see that as a, a future for rail, these inner city rails? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's already partly there, but there's no doubt we're going to see more of it, right? I mean, we're having some, there's some very exciting times right now and a lot of creative things happening. You know, Amtrak just got record-breaking money from the feds to just money they've been asking for and support they've been asking for for decades to just transform the Northeast Corridor, which is really our only like almost true high-speed rail in North America. And um, they've just bought a whole new fleet of high-speed trains. And, you know, that's really exciting for them. And I think that's going to make a lot of changes. But California high-speed rail is on the horizon. It's real. It's happening. And it's going to take some years. But like you said, it's a perfect market. You know, Los Angeles to San Francisco, it's going to be done in phases. But what a perfect market, you know, to just sit on a train and two or three hours later, City to you know city center to city center, and um, it's just a perfect solution. Now, you also mentioned some of the creative, let's call them business models. You know, Brightline's all private sector, Texas Central all private sector. Now, they have to work within certain boundaries, but they're they're really creative around um, how to pull together. And you know, let's face it, I mean, um, Brightline. The Florida line that they're running is something that our industry has talked about. 
for 30 years. There were three failed attempts to you know, get something going in Florida over the last 30 years. And Brightline, you know, they figured it out. And it was with the private sector kind of approach to things, um, you know, based on real estate and, and other ways of supporting, um, you know, the operating costs and other costs that they have. You know, ultimately, as a community, as a, as a country, um, well, both Canada and the United States, we have to accept how important these initiatives are across many areas, right? And just as far as public good and, you know, economy and productivity and environment and all these things, and just commit to them and invest in them, similar to what has been done for decades in Europe and Asia. Um, but we're getting there. And these are these examples I just described are, you know, they're all really exciting. And I, I look forward to, you know, seeing them play out in the United States and in North America. You mentioned green investment. And to me, it's always seemed like rail has an edge in being green. That it can be because it can be so easily electrified, um, unlike you know, rubber wheeled things, because you can always be connected to power. Do you do you agree with that? Do you think rail has a has a green edge over other modes of transport? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we have to face the fact that North America is a diesel country. I mean, it, we just have to recognize that. Um, you know, but as discussed above, it's it's just it's about committing and investing, having that political will to do it, to make it happen, and then with public support the dollars come, right? And so we, we just have to do that as an industry, as a community, right? Just to commit to these things and have our politicians be in line to, to make sure that investments there. Now, having said that, I think it's never less important to acknowledge that even with diesel, right? Traveling by train is far better for the environment than doing so by car. I mean, I'm not uh, doing the math really, but you know, it's not rocket science. If you have a rail car that seats 150 passengers and you have an eight car train, you know, what's that? So 1,200, you know, passengers on one train versus 1,200 automobiles on the road. Um, so forget about infrastructure required to support those 1,200 automobiles and, you know, the wear and tear on roads and, and all that other stuff. Um, it's... It's a no-brainer, right? And then, but having said this as well, and while electrifying lines and replacing fleets of rail cars and trains can be very costly, we're moving there. We're going there. It's, we have to go there, right? And some are already making that move, such as you mentioned Caltrain earlier, right? And Metrolinx, OnExpress in Toronto, they've just, they're making huge investment in transforming you know, um, Go Transit, the commuter railroad in, around Toronto, going to electrify everything, buy a whole new fleet of equipment. So people are doing it. It's there. You know, um, we're going there, but it's it's a long road. And we we are, unfortunately, right now, <laughs> predominantly diesel. Um, and there are also other alternatives that are popping up, right? We have hydrogen, we have battery-powered vehicles, you know, Hybrids in the New York area, they're coming into the tunnel, so they're not allowed to come in with diesel. So they're they're basically dual mode. They're dual propulsion vehicles, hybrids, if you will. I mean, the batteries probably not, I'm not sure they'll ever get there. I mean, they're certainly being used for streetcars and light rail today, but heavy rail, I'm not, sorry, not heavy rail, but commuter rail and intercity rail, 
I mean, we still have a long way to go there, but there are alternatives. I guess that's my point. Yeah. I think one of the ones that um, I've, I've heard about Metrolink in, in the other parts of California. Yeah. Los um, Angeles, right. In Los Angeles, they, they're using, I think, renewable diesel. That's right. So bio, yeah. I guess, you know, biodiesel, um, which as a transition thing, as a transition point between say, well, we can't electrify for whatever reason this line, but we don't need to get rid of our diesel powered um, trains and locomotives. We can just switch to a, a carbon neutral or a renewable diesel that, fine, you know, maybe it still has some emissions, but at least it's not fossil fuel. I think yeah. that that is a real uh, to me, that's a real bright spot in this right era right now over the next, I think, 10 to 15 years where the entire industry is going to be becoming zero emissions or no emission, you know, zero emissions, low emissions, just greener. And uh, I think rail is going to play a huge part of that in getting more cars off the road. Like you mentioned, 1,200 yeah, people sure, in right? one train versus 1,200 cars <laughs> in the same space. It's, right. it's really a no brainer to me. Yeah. Now, speaking of, so we've talked about a lot of several of the rail lines um, that you and I have probably, you know, both ridden on. Do you have a fav- favorite rail line? Do you have one that you just love to go on? I'm not sure I have a favorite, but, you know, but running along the coastline in Southern California is just amazing, right? So I would recommend that for anyone. Um, also on a few different trips, I ran from Seward to Talkeetna in Alaska, and that's just it's just incredible. The nature and, you know, the mountains and it, it's, it's a uh, pretty amazing. Um, more from the nostalgic side of things, you know, back when I lived in Denmark, I often ran from Aarhus to, to Odense, but also all the way to Copenhagen. And, you know, it was one of my favorite trips, not least because I was riding on a train that had been manufactured, you know, by us, by the company I worked for at right. the time. And I could, when I was in the office, I could walk across the way and watch them build those trains. So it, it was pretty cool to ride those trains. But it's also incredible they, that that line crosses two major bridges, two major straits, um, including tunnel. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool trip. That sounds cool. Okay, now what's on your bucket list? Well, as far as bucket list, again, I'm not sure I have. I probably should do a little research on this and find the most amazing <laughs> rail line in the world. But um you know, back to Alaska, I mean, I've heard of colleagues who have run north of Talkeetna, and there's some amazing old bridges like you would see in an old Western film <laughs> that, uh, um, that are apparently pretty incredible. I'd like to get up there at some point. Um, I was recently in Lugano, um, which is just, I had no idea how beautiful that little city is. And mm-hmm. There's just trains running along the coast of the lake and in the mountains. And I just, I can only imagine how incredible it would be a train ride there. So something I want to do. And then recently I ran Metro North Hudson line up north. It was also beautiful right along the Hudson river. And while I was there, I was told, you know, that uh, Long Island rails train out to Montauk uh, is also so way out east. So that's something I'd like to try as well. I've heard it's an incredible journey. I want to ride a maglev train. I've heard so many cool things about them. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, you know, they, I would have to go to Japan or China to do it. Though there's Northeast yeah. Maglev who's trying to do the They're same kind of project for yeah. the Northeast Corridor. That's that's my that's on my 
bucket list. It's like, like I would just want to experience that. I want to go on one of these super quiet, super fast trains yeah, just to experience sure. it. I've been on high-speed trains in Germany and France and in Japan as well. I mean, they were incredible, but it's the, I kind of like the nature, you know, when you're mm. in a train and you can just look out the window and you're just in the middle of some incredible nature. I think those are the coolest rides. Yeah, it would be cool. It would be very exciting. Yeah. But Marcelo, this has been a wonderful introduction to trapeze and rail. I love to learn more and more about and make sure rail gets this attention as a really essential part of our, our transit infrastructure. Our transit system is moving people along by rail. So I appreciate you being on the show and uh, talking with me. Thank you very much, Tris. My pleasure.